Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, what can we say? We're about to go to London here pretty soon. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, the conference season begins again. And it's cold. Well, it's cold for you. It's pretty nice over here in the West Coast. Yeah, a balmy 40 degrees? A balmy 40, yeah. The yeah. whole, like, four Celsius. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it's five degrees here, so I don't want to hear it. That's cold. Yeah. That's, yeah. Anything below the freezing point of water? Cold. I, you know, I have something that probably both you and Chris would be interested in for Better Know Framework, so roll the music. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Everykey.com. Okay. So, you know, you have this USB key, Richard, that you use to log into. Yeah, I've been using YubiKeys. YubiKeys, yeah. But you said it didn't quite go all the way to logging you into different things or maybe it logged you into apps but not Windows, right? Or the other way around? Yeah, the new build of Windows 10. Now you can directly log in. It's just, it's complicated. All right, so this is, so this is McAfee who's behind this, the guy. And uh, it's basically a little Bluetooth chip that logs you into Windows, your phone, Mac, all your websites, your car, and your house. Cool. Just by being in the presence of it. And if you lose it, you can remotely turn it off, make it, turn it into garbage. Yeah, take the code away. Take the code away. But uh, it, he showed a demo. Um, there's demos online at everykey.com of just having it near your phone. Your phone just comes on and you're in. Same with Windows. It's not like there's a login process. You just put it near Windows and you're logged in. Right. Yeah. And it looks like it's the same for, for websites and apps and things like that. Sounds like it's promising everything. It's always the, the, the devil's in the details. Well, you can buy them, and I think they're under 100 bucks. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to check them out. I'll report back to you. Love it. That's all I got. Cool. Who's talking to us today, Mr. Campbell? I uh, grabbed a comment off show 1509 from January of 2018, a little over a year ago. One Chris Love when we were talking about PWAs, Progressive Web Apps. Yeah. Yeah. A great conversation as usual. You know, come to expect that from Chris. Nothing less. And uh, Jeff Hurst said, guys, this episode was superb. I got interested in PWAs having heard Paul Therott bang on about them for weeks on Windows Weekly. Uh-huh. However, this particular one cracked me up was with the mention of the TSR, the Terminate and Stay Resident application. Ah, so, banging against yeah. the trivia. Uh, it's just you, at that moment you realize three old guys talk about software, right? Right, nostalgia. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly, I was transported back to being 18 years old and working on Data Ease, DBase, and Lotus One Two Three. Oh yeah, <laughs> the, the good old days. And I even laughed out loud on the train, which is not a thing you want to do if you don't want everyone looking at you like you just grew three heads. Yeah. Good old interrupt 21H. That was a great show. Thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, TSRs. Yeah, it's just one of those moments you remember. You realize a lot. Some of our listeners are as old as we are. It's funny that DLLs, dynamic link libraries, are actually right. dynamic because they can be shared in memory. Yes, like a TSR. So that was the evolution, the Windows version of a TSR, essentially. Yeah. Well, sorry. Yes, yeah, sort of. The, but yeah, that idea. That yeah, the back idea. Back when we had to conserve memory, right? When that was right. the most important thing, right? Right. That was, that was the whole thing about Windows. What got me going over to Windows was the idea of, oh, okay, one driver so that you don't have to get a driver for each app for that 
printer right. or that scanner or any of those things that the windows owns the driver and and then when memory became insignificant right we just had more memory than we knew what to do with now now the problem was security and safety because uh you can't have all these apps sharing one common dll well that that's otherwise one can bring down the other and that's yes. guess what that's what happened that's stability. That's what DLL hell was about. Or right. one's dependent on one version, the other dependent on the other version. Version right. recognition isn't working properly. Boom. So now everybody gets yeah. this since NT. Everybody gets their own process. You load up your own DLLs, <laughs> and you're the only one that can use them. Thank you. And aren't we on the way to literally you get your own virtual machine, and you get your own That's virtual right. machine, and you get your own Stop. virtual you're machine? You're blowing my mind. <laughs> oh, my God. So, Jeff, thanks so much for your comment. A copy of Music Decode By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music Decode By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on Facebook. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music Decode By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. They open automatically. Nice. Coming up on my 20,000th follower like in the next few days, I think. Yeah. I'm up there, too. Yeah. It's crazy. It is nuts. All right, let's bring on Chris Love again. Chris Love is a front-end developer for people and companies who are lost in the sea of modern web and user experience standards. He has a quarter century of web development experience and has built a wide variety of websites and apps in those years. In recent years, he immersed himself with responsive web design, single-page web applications, web performance optimization, and now he's really into SEO, which we're going to talk to him about. And you could read more about Chris at .netrocks.com. Welcome back, Chris. Hey, it's good to be back, guys. Yeah. Okay, well, let's just jump into it, man. SEO for enterprise developers is something that you've been working on. Yeah. Is there a difference between SEO for non-enterprise developers? Well, no, I really think just kind of looking over things a lot, because uh, last year I've spent, since we, especially since we talked, a whole lot just really diving deep into the SEO realm. And as I go through it, I just see there's a lot of things that I think enterprise developers can learn and take away from good search engine optimization principles, especially around the technical SEO side of things. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it, whether you're building a lot of business application or you're trying to build something that you want to rank, say, in Google and be a marketing machine, Mm. Every, everything we build as software developers has to appeal to a customer of some sort or another. Mm -hmm. So that means we have to really pay attention to what works, basically. And, you know, one thing that's frustrated me in the enterprise is that there's not what I would say a whole lot of good research and data around how to build good enterprise applications. And that could be, you know, whether internal line of business application or a software as a service application. But okay. I know one thing that we're definitely seeing is that a lot of the successful software as a service type applications are looking more and more like the native mobile applications, just good user experience. Right. But at the same time, there's still there's still a lot of things that are lacking in, in that scope, I think. Do you think that's because that the search engine optimization techniques change so fast? Is, is that why we don't have like a, a standards a lack of standards, or do we have standards that, that have persisted and now people just don't know them? Well, um, I think the uh, the search engine optimization crowd, the marketing online marketing crowd, 
probably does a lot better job of keeping up with trends and jumping on them and testing things and are more willing to try, test, and throw out and replace things really quickly. And they don't get too attached to a lot of things. And honestly, a lot of ways in our software world, we get that way too. But I mean, you look at what's, I mean, what, what is it, Angular 8 right now? And like two months, it's going to be Angular 9. And by the end of the year, it'll be mm. Angular 10. You know, you see what mm. I'm saying? Um, but we get it, we get basically get, we're constantly evolving to make supposedly software developer development easier, better, more robust, whatnot. But the same thing happens right. in the SEO world. The, the, the thing about the SEO world is it's all about, connecting with that end user. And for the most part, the enterprise developer is a back-end developer. They're not really a front-end developer. And so I think a lot of a lot of things a lot of things get missed in the enterprise. And I see this all the time, just I would say poorly designed user interfaces, user experiences. Um, they're really like not a first class citizen, if you will. Mm. It's more about mm-hmm. that back-end coding. And that's where developers tend to sit, and they tend to forget about, wh- you know, where where is it really important? And it's it's all about that front end experience type of thing. I think, you know, as I as I looked over, you know, what what have I really kind of clung to? So one of the things that I come on here and talk about, and you know, get a lot of people stirred up about is, you know, my stance against frameworks and 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 being a, a walk for uh, making really super fast websites and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And honestly, a lot of the influence that came to me on that is really from following the SEO stuff, the guidance from Google, whether it's from the Chrome team or the search engine optimization teams or the, the, the search teams. I guess. They don't like to call themselves search engine optimization, but uh, you know, what are they telling me? And the reason why I pay attention to them is they got tons of data that they're analyzing. They know what's working, what's not working. And when you say you know, search engine optimization rules and standards essentially change, I don't know that they've changed so much. Is, is it's Google collecting more and more data and analyzing what are people really trying to solve uh, ultimately. And they're trying to find the best solutions for people's questions when you really boil it down. And, yeah. and so what, what they ultimately bubble up to the top is what gives not only the best content, but also has the best user experience. So you know, if you just look at the web performance thing, right now the average web page takes 22 seconds or more to load and that's ouch that that's embarrassing yeah and i you know i i can't tell you how many times an enterprise developer tells me that their pages load in two seconds or less and then i run them through a test and it's you know 25 30 35 or 40 seconds it's because they they don't even they don't necessarily understand how performance is measured and what google's looking at is that time to first interaction when is the page actually rendered and somebody can, let's say, type something or scroll something? And that's what they're looking at. And what typically a developer is looking at is that time to first byte. Right. Which, while important, t- tends not to be where the bulk of the rendering process actually is. Sure. Well, and, and most techniques today do so much back-end loading anyway that your time to first byte is always super short. It's just not usable. And how many times have we had a half rendered page and you tried to click on something and it just sends you completely sideways? Mm, exactly. Or you go to click on something and in, and, in, and in the time it takes to make the stroke, it moves down because we're still doing CSS render and you click on the wrong thing. That is the most annoying thing about using the web I've found. Crazy. Just go to click on something and it moves and you end up clicking on an ad or something. <laughs> yeah, news sites are the worst about this, aren't they? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they got the especially when you got the the hero banners that pop in that aren't like pre-sized effectively, and so the, you know, you're like, yeah. I'm, I'm actually reading it. Or something that I hate is I have to pinch in to actually read the fonts because the fonts tend to be too small. I mean, I'm getting old now, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, AARP is sending me more and more mail, and I'm not sure I like that. Uh, so. But uh, yeah, so I pinch in to read stuff, and inevitably, as soon as I pinch in and zoom in, it re-renders and it goes right back to where it was before. And I'm like, ah, that's so frustrating. But, yeah. but you know, but Google's measuring those type of things. They're looking for things like that when they're rendering pages. Is there a lot of jank? Is there latency to time to first interaction? Time to first content, contentful paint? Um, all these. Uh, key performance indicators that I don't think a lot of developers are really aware of. I, I'm Over the last year, I know that the search marketing crowd has become more acutely aware of them. And if you look back at their general messaging around things from 2015 to 2017, a lot of it was, you know, make sure your, your server's fast, make sure you optimize images, blah, blah, blah. In the past year, it's gotten to eliminate JavaScript and eliminate unused CSS and stuff that I've been like trying to say a lot. So they're really, right. really starting to learn that. Uh, to a, a heavy degree right now. A lot of that's just because Google is messaging that to them and they're paying attention to it quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, a- HTTPS is now a requirement too, right? Like they're, if it's not a secured page, they, they lower its, its search ranking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a simple one right there is you, if you're not using HTTPS right now, you've pretty much just got a site that people don't want to visit. I mean, Chrome, right. Chrome in particular is has migrated through a series of things around HTTPS as far as how they're visualizing it. And today, if you load a site that's using HTTP, it's going to say not secure in the address bar. That's scary yeah, to the average right. person. Sure. And now there are now I'm you know I'm constantly monitoring uh, keywords and what's ranking for keywords and stuff. Generally, you never see a site that's HTTP. Now, there are a few sites that still use HTTP. Occasionally, I'll run across that are in the top 10, but that's very, very rare these days. And to me, that's a clear indicator that, um, you know, that's something you definitely have to do. The good news is, like, by now, I think about 80 to 85% of actual websites are using HTTPS. But another thing that that when I do run across a public site that's using HTTP, what that clearly indicates to me is it's basically abandoned at that point because no one's maintaining right. it. And usually when I look at the content, I can tell that, you know, the last update date was 2015 or 2016 or, or you know, something like that. And, you know, the page, the page that may be in the top 10 has probably been there for a long time. And it's just, it's a matter of Google has so many different ranking factors. And some of them are a little bit nebulous. They, you know, this whole causation, correlation, you know, which one's, you know, actually right kind of thing. I think there's actually a trust factor that goes into it where Google's like, okay, I trust this site's been there for 10 years. It kind of, I kind of trust it. I'm just going to slowly move it out of the top 10 uh, as other pages tend to, I tend to feel like I can trust better kind of thing. So that's why I think I still see some pages that are using HTTP. But like I said, most of those sites, when I go to them, they're like, wow, like, you know, 2000, 2001 era layouts and and the content is really out of date and may not necessarily even be accurate anymore, especially when it comes to software yeah. development. So, yep. um, GeoCities calls and wants its page layout back. <laughs> I, I say this all the time. I'm constantly coming across websites that are information, right? An mm-hmm. article about a technology or something, and there's no date. 
Yeah. It's just frustrating because you can't use it. You can't, you don't know. Yeah. I'm I'm a little conflicted about whether I I publish the date on my articles or not. And right now I don't put the date on them, but I I may be changing that soon. So you're the problem. (laughs) (laughs) But, but But I'll tell you what I do. And this, this gets into the technical side of stuff. A lot of what, what the Google spider is actually consuming is metadata, right? Um, and that's actually in the form of structured data these days. So you'll see in my articles, you'll see a, a section of script that's marked JSON-LD. And that's when you get into schema markup, to, uh, structured data kind of stuff. And it's, if you go to schema.org, is it schema, schema.org it, it gets really, I don't think it's really well documented so that it's easy to understand, but it's just all this kind of nested structure of how you can essentially embed metadata about a document or a page in the page so that it, it's not rendered, but it's something that the spider will consume. Hmm. Now, Google's like, well, we're not using that directly for rankings. What they're saying is we're, we use it to learn what the intent and content of the page is more about rather than just reading the actual content on the page. So it kind of gives them a little bit of guidance. But also, too, when you get into like local searches and, and uh, or things, let's say, product stuff like or, or recipes, there's actually structured data targeting those particular types of data. And yeah. if you got that there, then you can surface up in, in things like featured snippets and the rich uh, results and stuff like that that are not the traditional 10 uh, listings that you see there. So, right. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's another thing. A lot of, a lot of the search, those original 10 are really pushing further and further down. So the competition's more and more towards these things like featured snippets. And that comes from having a better page and, and, and honestly structuring your content so that you, you can, they can surface a concise answer to the right format for what the person's using, uh, seeking. So do Google and Bing and all the other search engines, of which I know of none, but um, <laughs> there are others, obviously. Right. Do they agree on these data formats? Is it that much of a standard? Or do we have to have, like if I'm doing a recipe blog, do I have to you know, put it in two different formats just to support? I, I noticed this in other um, pieces of data, metadata that goes in the header, that you know this search engine wants this particular tag and this one wants another tag so the, yeah so, so schema.org is its own like uh standard and it's not like a standard like html or javascript has standardization bodies there's it's i'm not even sure who technically owns the standard or spec around it uh but it is something that that is not it's generic it doesn't matter if it's google or bing or DuckDuckGo or baidu um, and I'm not even sure if DuckDuckGo and I have Baidu heard really of Duck, use Duck, them Duck, or not, but yeah. What? I have heard of DuckDuckGo. That's supposedly an anonymous search engine, right? Right. I, honestly, I I don't pay much attention to it, even though it is based here in Philadelphia. But uh, uh, yeah, it, yeah. So the thing is, <clears throat> the general rules around search engine optimization pretty much work across the board with all the search engines. They all have their own, you know, subtle tweaks to the ranking algorithms. But for the most part. If you're ranking in the top 10 on Google, you're probably going to be at least in the top 20 on Bing and vice versa, that kind of thing. Um, so, but yeah, the, as far as like the structured data, that's that's going to be very common because that's defined outside the search engines themselves. Mm-hmm. What What is different is not necessarily about that, but social networks like Facebook and Twitter have their own metadata structure. Hmm. And Facebook, yeah, Facebook uses Open Graph and Twitter uses Twitter cards. And so if you look at my, my, my head markup, you'll see that those are present on my public pages as well. Now, those aren't really important for 
enterprise uh, developers, if you're doing line of business stuff or anything that's essentially behind a password, let's say. Um, but it's good to know that, that like when I think about the technical side of, the, of what I'm doing, I need to think about the actual data that uh, is going into whatever that user interface is. And so to me, I'm looking at what is the actual data model and how am I going to structure that and how am I going to make that consistent across all the usages of, of that particular type of data, for example. And, uh, you know, um, there's just a lot of thoughts that go into how I'm structuring my layout and, and all that kind of stuff as well. But th these are kind of behind the scene things. What occurs to me, Chris, is that you've been traditionally all about speed and therefore using less frameworks or no frameworks and doing everything in vanilla JavaScript. But... Uh, but you're also focused on other techniques that um, that increase the speed uh, or the perceived speed, anyway, of websites. And how does that intersect with search engine optimization? Does a faster page necessarily mean a, a, a better SEO ranking? Or conversely, does a very slow page just not get listed at all? So the official word by Google is that um, slower pages are actually affected more. Um, their guidelines are basically three to five seconds. And when they say that, everything uh, Google does is mobile first. In fact, over the past six months, they have, they have flipped their primary index from a desktop index to a mobile index. So mm -hmm. now, when, hmm. now when the Google Spider comes through, it actually uses um, a, a mobile device to, or mobile emulated device. I'm not sure exactly the technical pieces of that. Uh, and effectively they're using like a Nexus five class device and testing over like a three or four G type of connection to ver to kind of see what, what is your user experience like? And that's their primary interface to your website. Even if you're getting 80 to 90% of your traffic from desktop, you're still most wow. likely going to be mobile first at this point because I think they've converted just about every site over to to that as their primary index now. So basically, if you're not loading quickly and rendering nicely on a mobile device, you're kind of not going to be able to rank, right? Wow. Yeah. So so you got to you got to you got to make sure you're fast on mobile, and that's the real trick. So if you're testing on your local you know, i7 with 16 gigs of RAM and, and all kinds of nice capacity and, and loading over a, over the actual bus on your computer and not the network, uh, that's not going to do you any good. It's just not even going to do you any good, right? So well, you're yeah. not looking at the right thing anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely mm -hmm. not. You're, you're not experiencing it like Google saying your end users are going to experience it. So right. a lot of times, even when, I, when, I'm, when I'm working on a line of business or SaaS type application for an enterprise type customer, I'm like, you need to make it mobile first. And they're like, well, we control everything that anybody's ever going to use this on. And I look at them and go, yeah, no, you don't. And <laughs> That's right. well, plus they're, they're arguing with Google. You're not going to win that argument. No, you're not. But but I, I do go back to a quote that Jason Grigsby used in the presentation, I think the Smashing Comp, probably five years ago. And I'll, I'll paraphrase it because I don't have it sitting in front of me. But he said along the lines of, yeah, okay, the enterprise IT department thinks they can control what hardware, what monitors the end user is actually going to use. But yeah. the reality is that's like putting a line in the sand. Um, you know, mm. the wind's going to blow it away or the tide's going to come in very quickly and remove that line and you're going to be totally, you know, in a totally different place, right? And that's honestly with the mobile revolution, that's really where we're at. I mean, we're what 10 plus years since the iPhone was introduced at this point. Right. 
the reason right. the reason why Google has flipped to the mobile index is because I think it's almost eighty percent of the searches on Google are done from a mobile class device these days, and that should tell you a lot right there. And yeah. you know, more more and more, especially when as phones are getting bigger, they're becoming the primary device interface for most people because they're just so much more convenient. And so, well, if you're you ha- they're the thing you have. Yeah, so right? if, it's in your hand. Well, so if you're if you're designing your enterprise software right now for that fixed desktop in the cubicle or even the open office, if you want, um, you're you're essentially limiting your potential growth right there because your employees, especially as the millennials are rising, are not going to want to be chained to those desks. They want to be very flexible, and they're going to they will find a way to use it on mobile. And if you're not usable on mobile, they won't be productive, and most likely they probably won't stay in the company. I mean, that's just one of those right. frustrating factors of cust- of employee retention, if you will. And if you're selling a SaaS-type application and you're not mobile first, you're probably not going to keep those customers or even be able to get those customers. Hmm. Uh, I'll give you a good example of a customer I had this past year. They came to me. They're like, we, need, we think we need to go to Progressive Web App because our competition's really starting to kick our butt because we don't work anywhere off, off of a Windows desktop machine. And... It was a software as a service type thing, and they they absolutely wow. were right. I mean, their their market is heavily, quickly, rapidly going towards a mobile wireless device interface, and they could see it. Unfortunately, their code base was really not ready to even go that direction. I kind of also think that the as soon as you have an identity barrier of some kind, a login or something, anything beyond that is just not SEO available. Yeah, well, that's that's where a lot of people like, or a lot of, especially a lot of developers, I think, say, okay, it's behind, it's behind a password, so we can dictate everything. And the reality is, you really can't. Right. Yeah, it's not going to be something that you're going to have the search engine spiders index. Absolutely not. I mean, there's yeah. there's nothing on Facebook that's indexed. It's all behind a password. You know, but it's essentially a closed off, you know, community application is what it really is. And, you know, industry analysts, analysts call it, you know, the Facebook app, a browser. They actually classify that as a browser when they look at it. And it's just a closed off community of data effectively. But that data is not available to the search engines. It's not surfaced. If you search for things, at best, you might find, you know, the .NET Rocks, you know, business page on Facebook, that kind of stuff. You might be able to find those kind of things. But I find that those are very hard to actually surface. I have better luck finding Twitter pages than I do Facebook pages and search Yeah, engines. me too. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, pre- I appreciate that. But I'm thinking in the context of if I am going to take the SEO seriously for my SaaS app, I have to think about what can be indexed outside of that 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 identity barrier well i wouldn't worry about what can be indexed i'm looking more at what what lessons can i learn from what works in seo to make my SaaS or line of business application better what what kind of what kind of nuances can i make in build into my application to make it a better user experience to make my code structure better Uh, all those kind of things because those principles translate directly back to any software in my opinion it doesn't matter if it's something you want to rank in organic listings or something that is you know behind the password it's still about connecting with the actual end user and that's where there's so much data available on what what connects with people and it's a lot of it is surfaced through this seo type world right and like i said um, there's three things that go into Google rankings that we know of right now. Three top-level things. Obviously, backlinks are still big. That's essentially how the whole company is built. 
And then you've got uh, uh, the on-page uh, factors, content and technical stuff. But then you got the whole idea of rank brain. And I don't know if you've heard of rank brain or not, but rank brain, rank brain, okay. rank brain. So this rank is the, brain. <laughs> so what Google does is they use machine learning to determine what are people searching for and what's going to best match up to it. And we don't know exactly how this really plays into it, but we do know more and more like. Um, like Google make, has, has historically made these massive in, you know, algorithmic and index updates at different points. You hear things like Penguin and Hummingbird and things like that along the, along the years. Last year, they made a lot of them. Like the big one was beginning of August called Medic. But there's there's like all these little things that in the search engine optimization, people monitor these things like a hawk, right? So really what's going on, I think, is that the Rank Brain engine is making these automated tweaks to their search algorithm and ranking based on what it's learning based on user activity as it grows and changes. Now, one thing that they do say is that, you know, like 20% of the searches each day in Google have never been entered in Google before. So Google doesn't have something prepared for it. So what it falls back on is this machine learning to offer up, okay, here's our best guess kind of thing. And then it starts learning from what people do uh, from there. But a lot of times that rank brain is going into is trying to evaluate what are what what is making people click on things, what is making people dwell on things, not what they call pogo stick or bounce back to find the next uh, thing. Um, how far down are they scrolling on the page? All, all kinds of like hidden little factors that go into what makes the best result, what makes the best experience, and so that's and that, that's what I keep coming back to. That's what we want to kind of understand. So. One, like, hey, Chris, can I just uh, ask you to pause for a minute while we take a moment for this very important message? Sure. Hey, Carl here. I just wanted to call out one of our patrons, Jonathan Gallagher, for pledging $100 a month. Thanks, Jonathan. And thank you to all of our patrons who support this show every month. And if you'd like to have your name called out on .NET Rocks, become a patron at patreon.netrocks.com and help us stay on the air. Thanks. All right, and we're back. It's .NET Rocks, Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell, and that's Chris Love talking SEO. It's uh, it's not as easy as you think. <laughs> I'm just reading a little bit about Rank Brain, and it seems to me that Google's literally experimenting with different engines, and you don't necessarily know which one's going to be applied for your search. Um, you, yes and no. So there's there's a concept of what we call user intent in the SEO world. And mm -hmm. I heard somebody mention the other day that there used to be a document that was floating around and you can't find it anymore, but that Google had identified 512 different user intents. So what does that really mean? Okay, what, what Google's trying to do is like when you request something from Google, type a search term in there or use voice search, voice search is becoming huge right now. Um, what, what kind of information is going to satisfy that intent the best? Is it, is it a top 10 list? Is it a guide? Is it a tutorial? Is it a recipe, for example? Is it a product? All these different kind of user intents are, are very different. And so the way I'm, I, I think about that when it comes to enterprise software is, what do I need to understand about the actual end user? What are they trying to accomplish? What problems are they trying to solve? What, where are they having problems right now? How can I make that better, more efficient, and give them that experience, right? And so the same thing 
when I'm when I'm working on what's going to make me rank better. Uh, I have to look. I'm looking at what are those kind of factors that go into it. Um, just because it's a basic table, let's say for performance over data kind of stuff, that may not be the right user experience for the type of intent that the person may have. I need to understand what right. they're looking to actually accomplish so that way I can surface the data or the inter- the experience and the action items and things like that correctly to make them as efficient as possible, for example. So if that makes sense. I just you know. There's got to be certain core strategies. PWAs or, or even spas, the way that those pages render, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know how indexable that is. Like, I'm, I'm wondering if there's <laughs> techniques we could be using on our pages that are literally impairing the ability for the the rank engines to even apply. So Google's got official statements around single page applications, and it's not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically, they're they're very diplomatic about it, and you know me, I'm not. Um, mm-hmm, but right. um, to summarize what they say, it, well, I'll tell you what they they've explained their process. They're like, when the spider hits your page and you're using a fast food framework like Angular or React, um, we will just look at the markup. We won't execute the JavaScript. They don't, they, when right. they first do it, they don't bother executing any JavaScript on your page. Hmm. And what I'm seeing more and more with the fast food frameworks is less and less actual content and giant sized bundles of everything. I am, right. I am, it's amazing over the past year how many sites I've gone to that have 30 to 50 megabyte files of JavaScript. Yeah. And I'm that's like, a lot of JavaScript. And, you, and it used to be more of a problem than it is now, but it still is, is a problem if your, your bandwidth is slow. Oh, it has nothing to do with bandwidth. It's about how fast is that going to be processed. And this, this yeah. goes to the average page taking 22 to 40 seconds to render. If, okay. you, if you go to HTTP archive, all the data is publicly available and you can run um, queries using BigQuery on that data. And if you dig through the forums like I have, someone's got a query that parses out um, the different JavaScript frameworks and how what's the average load time on these top 500,000 sites on sites that use them. And basically it's 22 to 29 seconds is what you're looking at. Hmm. And those are for the best sites. And a lot of those sites are kind of you know, password protected. So like Facebook, for example, that's looking at their login pages is using it in their sample data, for example. So that's not a good story right there. But like I said, Google's Google's going to come, they're going to render the page. They're just going to look at the markup. And what they say is, okay, if we see that you're using it, essentially heavy JavaScript, we'll put you into a queue and we'll get back around to you when we have time and we'll try to render your page. No guarantees on when they'll get back to you. Or if they, when they do finally get your page rendered, if they, if and when that's actually going to rank. And I'll be quite honest, as I go through and evaluate rankings and what's ranking, I, I almost never see a page that's got any of those frameworks on them. And I think a lot of it comes down to when it evaluates them and it takes so long for them to render, it says, this is not going to be a good experience, even if the content's good. It's not a good experience, yeah. so I'm not going to service yeah. this as a recommended result for to answer the question. There's, look, every day there's there's like from a search engine point of view, there's I think there's four and a half million blog posts that are published. That means there's wow. a lot of competition. There's two billion websites out there. That means there's one website for every four people in the world. That's wow. a, that's a lot of websites out there. Yes, it is. So it means the competition's heavy. And here here's a here's a big here's a big stat on all that. 
only 6% of the websites have content that is indexed in Google for a search result. In the top 100. 6%. Whoa. In the top 100 results. There's only 6% that are even present in the top 100 for any of the results. Wow. That's, yeah, that means most, most pages, most sites, most content out there doesn't even come up in Google for a search and no one ever sees it. Yeah. So that means getting in that top 10 and really in the top three is the goal. You want to be the best out there. And that, that should be the... Now, what about people that use... Go ahead. I was just going to say, that should be the goal of everybody when you're making software. You want to make the best software for whatever you're trying to do. Sure. So... What if you're using um, a, a company like Wix or WordPress or one of these, you know, website mills? Yeah. Do they automatically optimize for SEO or do, they, do you still have to... Uh, do you still have to do some manual work there? Uh, I will say no. I've had a few customers um, come to me and ask me why their Wix or Squarespace site is so slow and why it won't rank. And, and you know, I've, I've tried to help them, uh, you know, basically port them over to, to me doing it so that it actually will have a chance at ranking. Now, when I've evaluated Wix and Squarespace sites, they generally take about 30 to 40 seconds to render. And it's just, it's not because they're using... Mm-hmm you know, React or Angular or anything like that. It's just because they've got so much JavaScript on them because what, the way they look at it is they just throw all the JavaScript for every jQuery plugin they could ever find onto every single page. Just yeah. because, <laughs> yeah, it's not really right. thought out very well, in my opinion. Now, I know Squarespace is... you need is, it, right? <laughs> you know, well, Squarespace is actually looking for web performance uh, front-end engineers right now. I, I saw an ad huh? for that the other day. Um <laughs> But generally, those those pages for Wix and Squarespace, you, you'd never see those in the search engine rankings. And the SEO crowd knows that they don't rank. Now, most of the web pages in the world, like 70%, are based on WordPress. So you're like, okay, well, maybe that's the right path to go. But here's the thing with WordPress. WordPress out of the box. And I know they just had this big update with Gutenberg and everything. And I honestly haven't had a chance to look into it. Everything, everything in WordPress ecosystem is based on their plugins. And so there's this set of plugins that most of these guys tend to fall into, like the Yoast SEO plugin and that kind of stuff. And honestly, the way I, and I don't know a ton about WordPress at this point, but basically to me, what it is, it's basically a, a kind of a backend man- data management system. And ultimately these plugins take over the process of, to actually give you the admin interface and the rendering that needs to go on. And what, ha- what happens a lot of times is people plug in way too many plugins. They don't know why they're plugging them into it. So, you know, like in ASP.NET, we got, what, 21 to 25 steps that the ASP.NET pipeline flows through. It, it winds up being very similar. It's very similar to, like, Node Express and the, the module ecosystem there. It just kind of steps through. Um, and so you can have that low that that slow server side experience because of all the plugins but the other side of it too is those plugins a lot of times will just drop in excessive javascript to drive things as well um and they they find all kinds of like crypto coin mining and stuff built into them and things like that as well hmm. uh, so uh, so yeah wordpress is really more about the plugin ecosystem to structure it and things like yoast are built to kind of help these guys build a more search engine friendly from a content perspective. Right. And they do help them take care of some of the technical things. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, I've had some experience with WordPress running the older daughter's uh, web comic site and the, and literally there are web comic plugins. Oh, wow. That's interesting. There are also CDN <laughs> plugins or SEO plugins. Like it's, a, it's actually an impressive ecosystem. You just don't really know how effective it is. 
Yeah, and that's that's why WordPress is built up so much is because, I mean, these people are essentially addicted to plugins because it insulates them from having to write any code. And that's what they're ultimately after. Sure. <laughs> I think that's right. what most developers ultimately are after in, in a way, but yeah. Unless you like to write code or you're addicted to writing code. Well, I think a lot of developers are <laughs> addicted to writing code, but ultimately they're looking for things so that they don't have to write code, but then they wind up writing more code to make those things work. That's anyway. Right. <laughs> It's a terrible cycle. But there is this trap of when you use these genericized tools, because they have to account for all cases, they're inevitably bigger than anything you could have custom tailored for yourself. Exactly. And that, that's ultimately what like Wix and Squarespace are really suffering from. They're designed so that no matter what you want, it's going to be there. And it's more, they're selling more of the ability to create content without having to see the code in their page builder. That's what they're really designed for. Yeah. It's right. not really about what's the actual end product result. As long as the, say, customer sees it and they like what, the way it looks, then they think they've, not, they've met their business goal. And to a certain degree, that's, that's all that matters. I've, right. I mean, I've dealt with a lot of customers over there. They're like, oh, my website, great. And, and you know, like you got these animated characters that come in that after 30 yeah. seconds because it takes so long to load them or all these, all these kind of crazy vanity kind of things that are holding them back, you know? But uh, yeah, like, like, Oh, I'll tell you one that's really common right now is the, the, the scrollers, like the hero scrollers where you go and the site has four or five things that after about, you know, 10 seconds, the next one slides in and the next one slides in. Right. The research shows no, no one ever sees the one past the first one and it just keeps your page from loading faster. So find a better way to surface the information that's hidden that no one will ever see, you know. But a lot of times that's, that helps appeal to like the individual internal uh, fiefdoms where people are like, I need my stuff featured at the top of the homepage kind of thing. And so that's what that's really appealing to. So, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter that no one ever sees it. It's just that that person who has that business unit sees their stuff as featured in the, the main scroller piece. And somehow they think that's going to make, make things better for them. But it, and honestly, it, no one ever sees it. So I'm always annoyed by pop-ups that want me to subscribe to their newsletter or this and that. And I just got there. I haven't even taken a I look at a what thing. I haven't done a thing. And now I'm already presented with options to, to do more. Great example of something Google will punish you for. If you do that, that will hurt your ability to rank. It absolutely does. And that's because it's a bad user experience. Uh, I got driven off a hotel site just recently for a trip I have to do because it immediately popped up when I got on the site. And as I started working on something, another thing popped up. And then I continued to do some searching. And a third thing popped up. I was like, you really don't want me to buy a room here. I'm going to go somewhere else. <laughs> well, that that's that's so true. And uh, But that's, again, people are like, you know, the more things we have come up and interrupt you, the more likely we are to get a conversion. You know, the smart ones actually monitor what works and what doesn't work, and they'll take those things off. Right. Um, and or just let the user read something for a minute or two, you know, and if they go away, they weren't coming back. Just, you know. Yeah. If they're engaged and interested, then you want to present them with the option to subscribe to a newsletter or whatever. But, you know, right off the bat. Google will notice those, and they will ding you uh, along the way. I mean, rank, ranking in the top 10 is not something that happens overnight unless there's like absolutely no competition. It's a new term, all that kind of stuff. It usually takes three to six months to really get traction in it. And I, the way I look at it is Google's trying to learn to trust you. 
and your content for that particular answer. Because you know you could you could easily change the user experience and stuff like that, like really quick. Like, okay, I'm ranked. Now I'm going to start inserting all these pop-ups. Google's like, oh, I got to learn to trust this guy first before I let him do that kind of thing. All right. So using a CDN, I know that can help speed speed up the access to uh, large downloads and things. But is that uh, also good for for SEO? Absolutely. Um, it's good because it puts your content closer to the end user. And here's the thing I'll, I like about CDNs. When you're when it comes to organic ranking, really that content needs to be static. It doesn't need to be constantly re-rendered every time someone requests it. So what I recommend people use is to essentially have their rendering engine, have that push it out to somewhere where it's uh, hosted statically, and then you put the CDN loading those static pages. Now, that, that gets a little more tricky when you're building like a software as a service kind of thing because it's still, you. I mean, a lot of the stuff is dynamic, but that, that kind of goes down to API level. So what I use for my own stuff is uh, a series of Amazon Lambdas in a workflow that render out the markup for different things, put them, it puts it into S3 buckets, and then you put the AWS CloudFront is actually where you're retrieving the content from my site. So if you're in India, it's coming from Mumbai. If you're in the U.S., depending on where you're at, it could be San Francisco, it could be Dulles or you know somewhere else. And then there's like two or three data centers around Europe and other places. So that content is physically closer. Now that that obviously helps that time to first bite, right? And so that that helps in general uh, having the CDN. And I totally advocate for having the CDN. The other thing about CDNs that I really like is that traditional web servers right now. Um, are harder to get uh, SSL certificates, TLS certificates installed, and oh yeah, and it's also not as easy to have a web host that will support HTTP two. But huh, but basically every CDN uh, service out there will allow you to do free certificates and allow you to toggle HTTP two on, which you definitely want these days. That's cool. Yeah, it is cool. So we can we could get on a whole another rabbit hole about HTTP two and all that kind of stuff. But if you're not using HTTP two, well, you're, yeah, you're, you're kind I of mean, behind. I, I, being part of Strange Loop, we were one of the earliest implementers of Speedy. These days, I think the way to get to HTTP two is you just host in the cloud. Well, right, that's what I'm saying. I mean, CloudFront has HTTP two. Um, Azure finally turned it on. What about a year or so ago in their cl- in Something their like CDN? That, yeah. yeah. Um, but like I said, they're pretty. Basically, if, if a CDN service doesn't offer free SSL and HTTP two, they're probably not a CDN you want to use. Uh, to be honest, right? So, that, that, to me, that's like the the brown M and M's of of uh, a CDN selection. <laughs> if those two things aren't easy to turn on, then go somewhere else. There's too many other options out there where it's just you know easy to toggle on. So, ah, yeah. wow. So that you know, like I said, it also allows me to not use a traditional web hosting infrastructure, right? So I don't need I don't need a virtual private machine. I don't need a physical server anymore. I'm hosting everything in S3 buckets right now. And you could do the same thing in Azure. You could you could essentially do I think they finally turned on a, a nice or a reasonably nice static website hosting infrastructure in the last in this past year. Um, but having something that essentially will render that stuff out ahead of time is great. So you, you know there's tools out there like Varnish. Varnish is really popular. And basically what that'll do is when a page is updated in, on your web server, it will execute and render it out and then copy it to wherever that static website is at. Huh. And, um, you know, you look at like Stack Overflow uses this, this uh, basic structure to how they do it. It's all built in ASP.NET, but they built kind of like a customized Varnish that 
sits between the ASP.NET server and the actual place where the content is rendered and stored. So when you're loading a page from there, it's actually been pre-rendered using ASP.NET, but you're not actually triggering the ASP.NET pipeline, let's say. So, and this this is this can go back if you want to use React in Angular, then focus on making it a server-side rendered thing. And in my opinion, you want to try to make sure as much of that as possible is pre-rendered ahead of time so that you're actually loading static content. Because that static configured server is super fast compared to one that's got ASP.NET or PHP in place or, or 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 some CMS engine that has to get executed every time someone requests a page. That's extra latency right there. Well, you think about like .NET Rocks where you put up two shows a week, largely that doesn't change, right? Mm-hmm. So most of the time these pages could be served from a cache. Exactly, yeah. And even, you know, I've been working with some of the guys over at C-Sharp Corner. You know, you look at that and their content, while it changes a lot during the day, it's not like constantly changing. I mean, if we have a right. if we have a five minute delay on the li- on the list of new articles showing up on the homepage, is that the end of the world? Not really. You know, if we got a fi- no. every five minutes that pay- that homepage updates, and you know, even the comments on the- on those pages are being loaded as- asymmetric or asynchronously. Um, after the after the actual article contents loaded, it's loaded later on right. with JavaScript. So, you know, pretty much everything on the page, it can be pre-rendered. We don't have to use the ASP.NET engine to render the core content of the page. So, at least not at demand time. Is there anything we haven't covered here, Chris? Because I feel like you, you've got it to me where it's like, we just got to think about it. This thing's public-facing in any way. How is it coming up with SEO? Uh, how about, is, is it worth getting a consultant? This seems like a scummy business. <laughs> um, you know, it, it is a, it's a it's a space that I'm kind of learning about. And you're right, there are there are people out there that that are just used car salesmen. And I think that's the case with anything when it comes to the web. I see a lot of times. Uh, I can't tell you how many crazy stories I've heard about salesmen telling customers bad bad information just to make a sale. But it can be sure. Um, I would you know I would focus on. A couple of things. If you if you've got a marketing team, find somebody who understands how to structure content for that. Now, I don't think that's that's as important for the development side. You need to find somebody who understands technical SEO, and that's about that on-page stuff, the the semantic stuff, uh, server configurations, those kind of things. But I'll, but one thing I did want to touch on before we leave is um, try to integrate automated testing for a lot of the SEO principles into your build process. And I think developers can relate to that uh, very well. And there's two tools that I like. Same way we we, uh, put in web page performance testing as well. So this is just another layer to that? Uh, Basically, yeah. Are there some tools we need to know about? Yeah, so there's two particular tools that I I like to tell people to use. And one is Lighthouse, which is a Google Chrome-based tool. And the other one is WebHint, which is from the Microsoft Edge team. Now, both of these tools are node-based components. Uh, there are there are web interfaces to these. Um, in fact, the Google search team uh, has flipped their PageSpeed Insights tool over to use Lighthouse. And Google also released a web.dev at the, uh, the Google Web Developer Conference. I think it's a web developer conference back in November. And that's also based on Lighthouse. So Lighthouse sounds like the tool. Um, like that's what you should be using. Yeah, well, okay. So anytime you get the tool from the company, it tends to be a little bit opinionated. Um, so it's always good yeah. for that second opinion. Which but it's is opinionated why. by the company that runs the search engine that everybody uses. Yeah, basically. So... 
but, <laughs> but this is why I like the web hint using the web hint as well. I think I think web hint gets a little more um, get your elbows deeper into the technical side of things uh, uh, than Lighthouse will. And the reason why I say that both of them are test runners. Web hint I think is a little more ex- extensible with custom rules than Lighthouse is. Mm-hmm. Um, but by default, it's doing a lot of things that Lighthouse doesn't do. That, it, and I'll be quite honest, I think I've found more things I can fix on my pages with WebHint than I have Lighthouse. And probably with which? Yeah, um, I, it's it's hard to say. I mean, there, there's things some of the some of the things I'd never even heard of. But it, I think it does a better job of say doing accessibility testing, for example. Uh, although Lighthouse has come a long way in the past year. But all but, right, and I'm trying to get the name, the other name of the tool right. WebHint. Yeah, it used to be called Sonar Wall, and you know, like everything Microsoft, every year it changes its name. Uh, so if you go to webhint.io, that'll give you the main info page for WebHint. WebHint. Now Lighthouse is built into Chrome, but it's also a Node tool. So if you just want to run it locally on your on your pages, just hit F12, go to the Audits tab, turn them all on. Uh, there's like five different categories. Turn them all on. Also, make sure you're testing over on a mobile device over th- three to four G, and run it and see what it comes up. And that's effectively what Google is using to index your pages. Is that kind of is that test right there? Um, and it gives you all kinds of great insight and stuff. It tests how well you're how well you're uh, applying the basic principles of uh, progressive web apps, what your performance is like, and other kind of technical things. There's cool. some real high-level SEO kind of stuff that any most of the SEOs just kind of chuckle at, like, "Oh, well, that's yeah, I gotta have a title tag, duh," you know. <laughs> so yeah, uh, it's, it's funny how people miss that stuff, though, right? Yeah, but these are also these these also come with command line utilities for over their Node modules, so you can integrate these into your build process, and that's where I think I really like it. And the data is exported as JSON, but you can also say dump it out as XML, I think, too, and and maybe even CSV. That way, you can you can make it. Uh, uh, consume, consumable by your reporting system. So you could make this stuff visible uh, in a lot of ways and you can track your progress over time as well and kind of see how well you're doing uh, and build that into your, your build reporting system and stuff like that as well. So these are these are kind of tools. And, and the great thing about them is they're, they're running automated tests over your system. Now, obviously there's limitations. You can't, you can't automate how people actually really react in real life to your stuff that that still comes down to you you really need to have some something built into your testing cycle where you sit there and watch people who are supposed to be your consumers of your product use your product and figure out where are they struggling and how can we make it better kind of thing i always always want to do that that's usually the last thing anybody lets me do though, unfortunately so <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, yeah. The, those two tools will will get you a lot of the technical stuff that you need to have in place so that if you are targeting organic search results um, you can at least cover a lot of the technical stuff but that technical stuff uh, matters to any kind of application and it'll help you surface a lot of stuff that may or may not be right about your application and I'll be quite honest the first time I ran WebHint it freaked me out how much it said I had wrong. And I'm like, how, how dare it say I have this much wrong? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you got you to nice. take it just like you, you do, like your teacher grading your paper. It's an editorial process. Right. Yeah, no. It really is trying to help you. Yeah, it's just trying to help you. And piece by piece, you're going to be able to fix things. And uh, every little thing at, cumulatively adds up. And over time, it just gets, gets better and better. And 
over time too you'll find these task runners these will incre increase the amount of tests that they uh, have available in their pool and you can also extend them as well which is pretty cool so nice Chris, this is all good stuff, man. Every time we talk to you, we learn something new. Well, in this good. case, it was an hour of new. <laughs> oh, well, good, good. Yeah. yeah, I know the SEO thing's not something a lot of enterprise developers pay a lot of attention to, and that's why I think mm. it's uh, something that uh, can really benefit them a lot uh, and make them better sure developers. Yep. Well, thanks, Chris, and uh, we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a